0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Borderless Sustainability, where we explore the diverse relationship between people, planet, and profit, discover how language, geography, and culture impact sustainability, and ultimately aim to create change through knowledge. My name is Miguel Fraga.
1: And my name is Elisa Rivera. Ankur Shah is the Director of Operations at Mycelium, a nonprofit based in Huntsville, Alabama, with a mission of accelerating the circular economy using open source technologies. He received his bachelor's degree in physics and earth science from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He is passionate about climate solutions, urban sustainability, and nature connection. To fulfill his passion for environmental education and video production, Ankur created his YouTube channel dedicated to environmental issues and solutions. Outside of work, he enjoys playing ping pong, hiking, reading, and foraging wild plants and mushrooms. Welcome, Ankur.
2: Thank you so much. It's, it's an honor to be here.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an honor to have you. Um, you're a very, you know, young, um, young man right now, and I, I think it's impressive how far, you know, you've come in this, like, environmental uh, sustainability world, right? Um, and, you know, just to kind of get our conversation going. I wanted to ask you, what made you become more environmentally conscious?
2: Yeah, thank you Elisa for asking that. So I was born in Canada, in Vancouver, but I never lived there. I moved to India and um, lived in Mumbai for 10 years. So I grew up, my childhood years were spent in Mumbai. And as you may know, Mumbai is a densely populated city. It's the sixth densely populated city in the world. Has a population of about 21 million people and it's on an area of 694 kilometers square. So you can imagine the amount of in- environmental harm that goes on there. And um, I, while growing up, I had asthma. So I suffered from uh, some respiratory is- issues due to air pollution in India. And also, the place I stayed in was near a river that was extremely polluted. It's called the Miti River. and it was full of sewage. You could smell it while walking past it. It had um, he- high, high amounts of plastic pollution. And um, those sites, every single day, facing air pollution, facing water pollution, seeing environmental destruction firsthand, deforestation of areas that I used to play in, that made me think, is there a better way we humans can exist on this planet in harmony with nature? Is, is there a better way to live that doesn't harm people and the environment? And uh, that made me become more environmentally conscious and led me to pursue the path of earth science and environmental science that I'm on right now.
1: Wow, okay. Well, that's, that's really good. I mean, um, I, for our listeners, I know I mentioned you're, you know, you started, or you're the director of operations for Mycelium. Do you wanna just tell us what Mycelium is? What does it stand for?
2: Sure. So before I explain the nonprofit Mycelium, the biological entity mycelium is really interesting. So when you walk in a forest underneath that soil, there is a network, a very thin network of threads, which is the lo- among the largest living organisms in the world. And um, it is called mycelium because it is nature's internet, the biological internet that nature has evolved. And mycelium threads connect trees to each other in a forest and exchange nutrients between trees, big trees to small trees, and enable a forest to grow. So mycelium is basically this interconnected web from which mushrooms emerge, which transfers nutrients between different trees and has its own economy. It develops its economy. So we wanted to base a nonprofit that is mimicking the effects of mycelium in our human world, and I did not, uh, fa- I'm not a founder of Mycelium. Dan Meisner and Jeanette Blasius are founders. And they started with 3D printing. They had a- their engineers and graphic designers with a passion of 3D printing. And they wanted to teach people how to print, uh, young students how to print. And slowly, it, the idea became, well, if they can 3D print, why not use waste, plastic waste to 3D print? And um, use waste and make them into new and u- more useful resources. So mycelium began that way in 2018. I joined in 2019 uh, through a competition called the food system vision for 2050. And the idea was to develop a long-term vision 30 years from now on how our food system can become more sustainable, more localized, but more resilient to shocks, specifically climate change, water scarcity and so forth. And um, that's how I came into mycelium and now I'm leading most of the operations and projects that go on, and we focus on uh, accelerating the circular economy. That is our mission. So we try to use open source technologies and focus on three aspects. The first one is waste. How do we reduce waste and repurpose waste, recycle waste to, make, um, to use less resources in manufacturing? Secondly, we focus on food sustainability, so how do we develop a circular economy of food where food is not wasted but turned into a resource and um is and and make a more resilient ecosystem of food and thirdly we haven't done more projects in this but uh we have concepts for low income th- uh, 3d printed and circular housing so homelessness and uh, poverty is a big issue and people lack shelters but can we develop low in, um very low budget housing using 3d printing with mud. And um, that is an idea we have currently, and it's been done by other companies, Uh, but as a nonprofit, we want to open source these tech technologies. So that is our whole game plan.
0: That's incredible. That's amazing. Just to hear all of that combined. I've never heard about Mycelium to be honest. It's it's the first time I hear it. And that's very interesting. I mean, that's, that's nature. That's how wonderful nature is. And (laughs) I'm, I'm amazed how we are so behind in some cases because nature is so advanced and so good for us. But now something, and you mentioned some buzzwords that are just making a lot of noise in my head right now that I'm like, I really want to talk to you about this. And I really want to know your opinion about this. I recently, well recently, like a year ago, (laughs) read a book that's called Cradle to Cradle. And one of the things that came to me the most was um, they talk about the circular economy and um, I didn't really fully understand it until they explained it in a very interesting way. And the first one was um, that everything comes from design and that when you design something correctly, it needs to be divided into two categories, whether it's the uh, nature or like the two metabolism, the nature yes. or the organic metabolism and the industrial and technological metabolism. It's that's when you create the circular economy and for the nature or for the organic metabolism, That one is when, let's say the shirt that I'm wearing right now, if it's made 100% of cotton, which is an organic material, I can just use it, wear it, and the whole idea is to throw it in the dirt and the nature will just make it and comes back in another form of uh, use, right? Whether it's food or something else, right? But whenever you change something in a shirt, like let's say the print, the buttons or something, it's made out of plastic or something else, that stops, that stops the chain that stops the circular economy. Right. And for the technological metabolism, they talk even about, even about disassembly lines for cars that we're just making them to use and then throw away. But if you make, and but when you make cars, it's very famous, right? When Ford invented the assembly line, then it's like, Oh, you start with this, the motor, the the wheels and everything. You have this whole production line, but then they were reinventing that concept making disassembly lines. Let's say when you, are done with a car, bring it back, bring it back to the factory or the location. They can disassemble that car. That's usually or preferably made of hundred percent materials that can be taken apart and melted or whatever process can be done and done again. Right. So I know I'm talking a lot right now, but I want to know your opinion. On how would you explain what circular economy is and how have you learned more about it and how how why is open source technologies important for circular economy?
2: That's a great question. So before I explain what a circular economy is, uh, it's important to understand a linear economy, which you explained very well in a linear economy, uh, which we're living in for the most part right now, things are manufactured by extracting resources, assembled into parts. The parts are assembled into the product and consumers. We use the product and eventually it has a limited life cycle. It is thrown away. It's usually ending up in a landfill, and very small percentage of it is actually recycled or repurposed. Um, and this leads to excessive extraction of resources in a finite planet. We cannot live uh, with infinite growth on a finite planet, and it leads to excessive waste, which needs to be managed either with landfills or burning waste, which is not very sustainable in the long term. So, a circular economy tries to solve this issue by closing the loop like you said cradle to cradle, so you extract the resources once, but then you can create products that can that are by design uh, modifiable repurposed uh, can be repurposed easily uh, recyclable, or you can upcycle it so make make something new from that product easily and um a circular economy has two types of nutrients, biological nutrients, so organic nutrients that are derived from nature. and the second second type of nutrients are called technical nutrients, which are uh, um, artificial, which are in- industrial uh, results. So having closed loop cycles for organic and technical cycles will have uh, will be a different system. but a circular economy will eventually have waste as resources. It will, it it will embrace the idea that waste is only wasted resources, and this idea is being applied uh, to plastics. It's being applied to mobile phones, um, and I believe European countries are leading the way right now um, because we realize it's we cannot live like this forever. Like we will run out of resources eventually, and it is not sustainable. Future generations won't be able to have the same luxuries, the same lifestyles we have if we continue living this way, um, and consuming the linear economy. and um, What was the second question you asked? What, what's the
0: importance of open source technologies to circular economy? thank you.
2: Yeah, so the importance of open source technologies is that it can be developed by anyone across the world and the acceleration of development is much faster. Let's take an example of the coding language, Python. Python is completely open source and within, I, I believe, 10, 11 years, it's become the industry leader in terms of research, uh, engineering. I mean, in my job at NASA, we use Python. So Python is open source. It, it means you can easily find solutions on Stack Overflow. You can easily find existing code. Um, all of it is not licensed by a single company, and it's not for profit. Everyone can use it for different purposes. Open source technologies is the same way where we design systems or machines or products that anyone across the world can use can create by themselves 3d printers became cheap because they're open source and now it's leading to this decentralization of manufacturing that is beautiful so open source is really important because it will enable the spread of these technologies to places which may not be able to afford them especially developing countries where such solutions are in the highest need so um that is that is a core value that we have and uh yeah, so so we can we are open to creating kits from which people can assemble and buy it, but our designs, all of our designs, will be available and uh, anyone can make make it make them better, improve upon them, or just create their own new thing with the open source design.
1: Okay, so that's awesome. I'm um, I'm really happy that you're doing that. Um, I know Miguel and I were kind of interested in that sometime in college too with precious plastics, and yeah. I think sort of talked about um, this already a little bit. Um, but I, from previous times that I've interviewed you, you mentioned plastic waste solutions and what really caught my eye, and I'm hoping that maybe you can talk about a little bit more, is the mushroom solution, the fungi mutarium. Um, Yeah, I really want our listeners to kind of like know that this is even a thing, like it's possible.
2: Sure, sure. So mushrooms are fascinating, intelligent, and extremely, extremely well-evolved beings. Uh, mushrooms have, been evol- have evolved to decompose waste, to um, remineralize waste, to decompose organic matter and spread it and, and sprout new life. And um, the reason I started learning about mushrooms was through a TED talk called Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World. It's by one of the world's foremost mycologists named Paul Stamets. And um, he, in fact, he's developed technologies where mushrooms can, oyster mushrooms can absorb oil spills. He's um, also used mushrooms to kill viruses and bees to help them proliferate and reduce their death rate. Uh, mushrooms to kill ants, so fungicides, natural fungicides, instead of using insecticides. So all of these solutions are available. One of them is fungi mutarium, which is using mushrooms to decompose plastic waste. Now, this is still in the infancy phase, but a team of researchers and an artist at, in the Netherlands um, at the Utrecht University developed um, a prototype of a dome with mushrooms in it and it is uh, in a completely artificially controlled environment in agar gel and algae and a combination of oyster mushrooms and a specific species that I cannot recall at the moment um, were used in this device fungi materium and they were fed ultraviolet treated plastics. So these UV treated plastics would um, then over weeks decomposed by the mushrooms. And uh, the researcher who created this even ate them. So there's a video on the website. If you look up fungi uh we can send the link. Uh, this, you can see the video and the researcher and she's eating the mushrooms. And in fact, she believes it's safe but there's more research needed to be done. So these are solutions that we're just coming up with. We're just learning more and more about mushrooms and fungi and how they work. And it's an exciting future if we embrace nature and learn from her instead of trying to outdo her and, and think that we can evolve faster than nature because nature has a, had a head start of four billion, more than four and a half billion years. And we're just learning. So now how how can I say this? Like it's music to my ears, everything you're saying, and
0: I, and I love to hear a lot of science-based like facts and that you're mentioning, and of course, all of this that I've never heard before. That I'm really eager to research more and I want to know from your point of view how would you describe environmental sustainability because I think a lot of people have hard time to understand that even though it's very intuitive a lot of people just go ahead and say or think that environmental sustainability is just tree huggers or <laughs> just um <laughs> climate change activists, which could be part of it, right? But in what would you think, or how would you describe environmental sustainability? You being more involved in research and technical aspect of it, and more into um, that specific, that very niche part of
2: your work in sustainability. How would you describe that? It's a great question, Miguel. Um, so sustainability formally was defined in 1992 by a UN agency and uh, most world organizations and even companies have adopted this definition. It's um, sustainability is defined as living in a way such that resources we consume uh, do not compromise the needs of future generations. So sustainability is the ability to live in the present uh, in such a way that future generations are not compromised. Now companies have taken this idea and um, even great nonprofits have taken this idea to consume less and become more efficient, to reduce consumption to a certain amount, reduce this uh, X amount of resource consumption. Uh, But I think the narrative is shifting as to what sustainability could be. And a new word being used in many circles is called regenerative. You might've heard regenerative agriculture. And regenerative is the idea that can we, instead of using less and less, can we design systems that create more instead of us using less and by creating more it's not more production but rather more resilience Uh, so can we create systems can we create economies that that we don't need to adopt the idea of using less and less because eventually it might just delay the idea uh, delay the use of resources instead of actually um, coming up with new ones and circularizing them or regenerating them So sustainability is shifting from a definition where we use less to how can we create more resilience. And um, I embrace the idea of creating more resilience, of designing resilience, um, instead of being more efficient in resource consumption and using less.
1: Uh, Just a quick compliment here. I think that you break down or you structure your descriptions are excellent um so thank you to you that's awesome and i know that our listeners would appreciate this you know especially those who might not like have this kind of background you do a really good job at explaining thank you really so good job um i wanted to ask you you so you have a youtube channel and i'm sure that you talk on that as well can you kind of like uh, summarize what your youtube channel consists of and like maybe an episode to (laughs) <laughs> for
2: being interested. Uh, sure. So my YouTube channel, I informally started it in t- 2013. I made a hoverboard with a friend, which basically has a leaf blower, a circular wooden board, and then blows. But that was all fun and games. And then in 2017, I seriously started thinking. I like teaching. I was a tutor back then. Why not make short videos on topics that I'm passionate about? And of course, I'm most passionate about environmental sustainability. So this YouTube channel, uh, it's under my name. It's called Ankur Shah. I, I want to brand it something better. But f- at the moment, uh, I'm really small. It's called Ankur Shah. And I focus on the interconnections between environment, econ- ec- our economy, and, and culture. And I try to weave these concepts in into videos and um, see correlations and connections, how our culture affects our environment, how the economy affects the environment. Um, And uh, these are usually short videos uh, in the range of five to 10 minutes. And uh, episode that I'm particularly proud of is, uh, it's called, The Story of Ladakh, uh, Globalization and Modernization. Story of Ladakh part one is what it's called and um, it's it was a trip in 2019 that I took to this northern Himalayan region of India called Ladakh and it was a two-week trip where I interviewed people about changes they've seen in their life lifetimes because this is a really remote region of India and recently in the past 20 years it has started modernizing so there are new roads new companies coming in and um there's a rapid shift from villages to the urban areas of youth. And it's it's really, really rapid changes in lifetime. So I started asking, how has the culture changed? How has the environment changed? And this is a part of that documentary. And um, I, I'm most proud of that, that, that piece. That's wonderful. That's
0: something that I really admire of people who are very, very knowledgeable like you, that you guys, you are not selfish and you just want to, put your knowledge out there and teach people. I think that's a very honorable virtue that not a lot of people have. And I'm really thankful that you have that, that you can share that with us in this case today in this episode. Um, but something that I really like as well is how your niche on circular economy, and you can really explain that well to, uh, I'm assuming you talk about it in your channel, and YouTube channel with us, but, I'm a very practical guy. <laughs> I love when I, I love, I love theory. Of course, I love theory. But I sometimes I always ask the question, but now what? I mean, I, I understand. I like it. I follow you. I, I love it. But I mean, how me as a normal person with a normal eye? <laughs> what, what can I do? I mean, now what? Now that I know what circular economy is, that is the biological metabolism and the technical metabolism mean my normal life? What can I do? How can, how would you encourage someone to live or to start um, doing circular economy things or to promote it or to integrate it in our daily lives? How would you do that?
2: That's a perfect question. And it's a question I often ask myself, what can I do? What can I do? And um, ultimately, I've come to the conclusion that local impacts will be the most effective for people living normal lives like you said Um, because thinking globally is great but acting globally is often in vain and and not practical but if you start thinking of a circular economy in your household and then in your community i think that's where change really happens and if it's done on a broader scale so let's for instance think about our household um I started with how, how many bags of waste is produced in my house every single week and what constitutes that waste? How much is food? How much is plastics? What types of plastics go in? Um, am I throwing away any goods that could be donated? Am I throwing away anything that could be given to college students or, or homeless people? So that's how I started thinking of, okay, I'm using these, these goods and services. I'm using these resources. How can I, instead of wasting and instead of throwing away things, how can I repurpose them? How can I donate them? So for food, I actually got a food cycler because composting is really difficult. I used to compost in a previous house, but currently I got a food cycler that dries up my food, turns it into powder, and then I use use that food powder um, in soils where I grow tomato plants or mint or chili and sometimes I just pour it on the lawn. Um, I don't like lawns, by the way. I, I'd rather have a food forest, but the neighborhood needs to has, has a house HOA that I'm trying to fight. But anyways, um, yeah, so thinking about how you can have a circular economy, even starting with simple things, food, uh, your plastic bottles, if you use them, um, food, food containers, what can you do about them? So, so thinking on small scales, at a household level gets you to really make effective change because I think you're already doing something and it's just a small change in the lifestyle, small change in thinking um, that creates big shifts if done, done broadly.
1: Wow. I'm over here taking notes every time, every time we talk, I always learn something new or like <laughs> new things. I it's so impressive. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's encouraging. Like, I'm already thinking like what can I do or what can I start doing even in my apartment complex. You you mentioned like policies. So yeah. the policy that you're like currently looking at what what's the limitations just so I know what I'm going to face probably if I'm interested in something like so that. So is
2: this uh for for which policy are you referring to?
1: The one the one that you just mentioned about your like where you're living in. Oh yeah. Mhm.
2: Yeah. So, so there there are HOAs. Um, I believe. One sec. Let me look up the full form of HOA so I can get this right. Um, <laughs> <The> homeowners association. <laughs> home, thank you. Thank you. I forgot. Yes. so ho- homeowners associations in my neighborhood, uh, which require specific trees to be planted on lawns. The lawn has to be mowed um, to a certain height uh, f- frequently, and. Um, most of them even have services to spray, and thankfully, I've convinced parents to stop spraying. And um, lawns are not sprayed anymore. But um, but yeah, they require they require it to be a, below a certain height. And um, no no front lawn in in my neighborhood has a garden because it's not allowed, and it's allowed by the city, but not by normal HOAs. So that's unfortunate. Um, People have gardens in the backyard, which is great. I I have one small one. And, um, so how it's just, how can we change the narrative to lawns are not beautiful instead, they're a monoculture, um, to okay. A garden is more beautiful. It has more biodiversity. It has more life, more species grow there. And it's just, um, in this case, I think it's a cultural context of beauty. Uh, we think a golf course is beautiful, but it uses the highest amounts of pesticides of any land, um, besides probably large farms. So so it's, it's changing what is beautiful, what is beauty. And um, we have a very narrow vision of beauty, in my opinion, as we see lawns as beautiful, but it could be a forest, it could be a mini garden, could be uh, something much more life-giving
0: completely agree with you and it's always and it's all if it's a challenge in HOA which is a limited geographical zone right a neighborhood so that I can imagine and that's what we're all working on right now like to get higher up right with the city the county the state and eventually the whole world to understand that right Um, the importance of landscaping and how can we integrate even our own yards into the circular economy like I've been intending to compost because when I see yeah. the leaves that come down on the, during fall, I'm like, I, I feel bad throwing them away. I'm like, I need to mulch them. I need to do something with them. But it's like, I don't have that right now. So it's yeah. also the mindset. Like sometimes people think like, oh, it's very ugly. They fall in the ground. Well, if you put them strategically you're in the right place, I mean, they mm-hmm. turn into, into soil. that will help your soil. And then we'll, at the end of the day, benefit your, your garden. Also, I mean, the, I'm, like I mentioned, we're in El Paso, we're in the desert. When the Chihuahuan Desert in my in front of my house right now we have a lot of rocks and that's not good right because when i have a lot of rocks it will basically just absorb the heat and when it's um after sunset it will just return the heat and my house will be hotter than usual so that's why we're i've seen a lot of uh initiative right now which is a million trees will pass they're planting trees but also integrating the native landscaping or the native plants like here this this trend called serit's Xeriscaping, which is integrating cacti and different types of um, native plants and tree and shrubs here, that could help not only reduce the urban heat island effect on my house, but also improve the biodiversity on my neighborhood, my yard. Yeah, when I have native landscaping, of course, native la- native wildlife will come here, and we can improve the pollinators. It, it's kind of like imagine. All of, like one street, everyone in front, they have at least, I don't know, like a pollinator section of it dedicated just for the bees, the, the flies, the uh, hummingbirds. That was so cool that every street has that. And that would be basically a pollinator corridor for all the, like, right. it's it's so interesting that we have streets for us, but we don't have streets for wildlife for them to have food. But anyways, I think I'm going off topic right now, but <laughs> that's some ways we can um, somehow, I think, integrate circular economy. First is understanding it, how we are so washed into, like you mentioned, the idea of beauty. Uh, and also we need to be very very conscious about greenwashing. Like I hate the uh, industry, the fashion industry, that they, when they say something is 100% organic cotton, it's not always the true. <laughs> Sometimes the dye, I mean, probably it's it's a half true because the, the, the fabric itself might be actual cotton, but the dye they use to make the, the color it is, it's not sustainable and it may, un, may end up being toxic to the soil because it's not an organic dye. So things like that, it's to learn that like, to be truthful and to understand which companies are we supporting, which trends are we supporting? How can we start living that circular aspect of vegan. Of course, the less waste we create, the better. But as we we're um, getting near the end of, the, of our episode, time flies as usual when we talk to awesome people about awesome topics. And um, for before we go to our last, last question, which is always the same question to all of our guests because we want them to squeeze their brains a little bit more to learn more about <laughs> how they know so much. I want you to ask and to like summarize us and like if someone just listens to this episode, the last three minutes of it, how would you summarize circular economy and invite someone to start learning more about circular economy and integrate it in his or her life?
2: Wow. I would invite a person by asking, are you tired of the waste we produce? Are you conscious of the fact that resources are limited. And uh, we cannot survive, our civilization cannot survive longer if we keep continuing uses uh, usage of resources at this rate. So how can we manage that? How can we design new systems that repurpose waste that make waste as wasted resources and um, enable life for future generations? And that that is what a circular economy aims to do. So it's a beautiful economy. (laughs)
1: well that's awesome i just wanted to add two cents to that and ask you um you didn't mention in your introduction that you are working with nasa and you're working on some satellite and i'm assuming that this is like observing earth like the earth right yeah Um, sustainability do you can you name the satellite research that you're working on just you know for those who might be interested like me yeah
2: sure so my latest project this year has been using PlanetScope data. PlanetScope is one satellite among Planet. The company Planet has a suite of satellites, and PlanetScope is one of them. And it is a three-meter resolution satellite, very high-resolution satellite. And my project involves observing and detecting marine debris using Planet data. So what we've done is created a data set of marine debris, um, and we have images of marine debris in different coasts like Honduras, Ghana, uh, Greece. And we have created this data set and now we are using machine learning to detect marine debris in those satellite images. And this effort could then inform governments. We hope it it will be used by nonprofits like the Ocean Cleanup that focuses on removing plastic waste and marine litter from our oceans. And um, it is overall, uh, I think a very beneficial effort because about 8 to 10 million tons of plastics go into our oceans every single year and much of this marine debris is conglomerated with algae with wood and uh, of course plastics so how can we identify those and how can we manage them because most of it comes from rivers wow so that's what the focus is on this project
1: well wow. well thank you so much for adding that i just thank you for I, asking yeah it's it's just it's amazing like what satellite technology is doing yeah and like that that data is available to like the public you know so i think Mm -hmm. exposing that as much as we can is going to like also help create more change um and awareness of course so i guess to close off what we like to ask um is what kind of sustainability books would you like to recommend uh, to our general audience
2: that's a great question and a hard one because i have a lot of recommendations but the top one I would recommend, and I'm I'm going to read this another time, is called Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows. So this is a great book on really systemic thinking, not solving problems um, as a single issue, but rather looking at problems as having a root cause that is a cause of many issues and seeing interconnections between issues and coming up with systemic solutions that uh, make systems we have made more resilient and um, less prone to issues moving forward. So Thinking in Systems is a great book, um, highly recommend because it's a paradigm shifting book for for my mind, at least. Um, another book is called Affluence Without Abundance, and it's by a uh, author named James Suzman. And he lived with uh, the San tribe in the Kalahari Desert for quite a few years. I don't know the exact number, but he wrote a book on how People living simple, minimalistic lives are extremely happy compared to uh, us modern-day beings. And how is that the case? How do we live with less? How can we be happier with less? And um, it, it's a great book on on culture and environment as well. Uh, there's so many. I don't. I don't
1: know. <laughs> Thank you for for the recommendation. And hopefully one day our path and our research comes. You know somehow. Combines mm-hmm. or comes together. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, since you are in the NEST community, and I, I'll soon be doing that kind of research too. You know, it'd be cool to meet you in person, and I'm sure Megan feels the same way. It's been a pleasure, um, um Thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you. To you. Talk to us.